You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, December 19th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Exclamation point right there to, to hear it. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why are you spending your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast and sure love. Friends, these are God's words for the spiritually thirsty. For those whose hearts and whose souls are continuing to pant for the very thing they were created for. These are his words. Come. Come and get what you are desiring. Get that which is essential for your life. These are God's words for the spiritually poor. Did you hear that? Come. Have what is essential for life without price. Especially hear these words for those who are spinning their wheels, spending their spiritual money on that which can't satisfy. Who find themselves spiritually poor because you're laboring for things that can't deliver their promises. Come. These are God's words. Come. Turn from such foolishness and come. These are God's words for the spiritually weak and hungry. Come to me and have milk and bread without price. All throughout the scriptures, milk and bread are often used to speak of that which brings strength and stability to the soul. Come to me, not just for what is essential for your life in the water, but come to me to be strengthened for life, for growth, for health. These are God's words for the downtrodden in soul. Come to me and have the wine and rich food that gladdens your heart without price. Friends, Isaiah 55 is God's invitation to us to come and to have our souls satisfied, strengthened, and filled by the one who alone can do it. To come and to have the very desires that he created in us, the longings 
the desires, the cravings of our heart that are part of his intention in creating us to have them satisfied, to be satisfied in him. If you've been with us through this Advent season, we have been considering these longings and these cravings and these desires of our hearts and how, as a consequence of the work of sin, our desires and our cravings and our longings of heart have been corrupted. And like Isaiah 55 verse 2 says, we often find ourselves spending on that which isn't really bread. That which really can't satisfy and strengthen our soul. Spending our time laboring, working, chasing after that which can't satisfy. In every time and age, from the very first hiss in the garden, God's people have lived amongst competing stories about competing kingdoms and competing means of such satisfaction of soul. Stories that speak of a different kind of bread and a different kind of labor that we're to go after in order to truly be satisfied, in order to truly live. We've been looking at how God created us, not just to long and not just to crave, but to find those cravings and longings of soul satisfied deeply and profoundly in Him, that our soul might be secure at peace, free, and happy. The stories of our world that we find ourselves immersed in day after day, they, they tell a very different tale, a very different kind of satisfaction. And so this Advent season, we have been considering the reality that our hearts are being deeply impacted and deeply miscalibrated by these stories. If our heart is a bit like a compass, the true north of our heart has been miscalibrated by the stories of our world that we find ourselves steeped in day after day. Kind of like that proverbial frog in the kettle. If you heard the story, I don't know that it's really true. I've never really tried it, but it sounds good. You put the frog in the pot of lukewarm water and you turn the burner on really low and he never really realizes that the water around him is getting hotter and hotter until it's too late. And you know how that story ends. The same is true sometimes of our soul. We find ourselves immersed in these various stories of bread that the world tells us will satisfy the hunger in our souls and labor that we choose to go after and chase in order to have it. And it can never really satisfy, but we don't really realize just how impacted our hearts are by these stories until we come face to face with just how chaotic at times our heart really seems to be just how deeply insecure and joyless our soul finds itself. How easy it is for us to accumulate a lot of religious knowledge, but at the same time, our hearts be a jumbled mess, doubting if real transformation, as God speaks about it, in our lives is even possible. And so in Isaiah 55, God's words to us in the space between this Advent season, the first coming of Jesus, and his second coming to fulfill all of his promises, God says to incline our ear, to hear, and to come to him that our soul may live. 
that we may have life. And he will make an everlasting covenant. Steadfast and sure. The good news, friends, is that he has. And while God's offer in Isaiah 55 to the spiritually thirsty and the spiritually poor and hungry and unstable and unsatisfied and downtrodden, while his offer is free, the fulfillment of it isn't cheap. His son would pay our price so that the only cost to us in being able to enjoy this feast that he offers is that we own up to our poverty, own up to our spiritual need, own up to our thirst and humbly come to him. That in him and him alone, we might truly find satisfaction, that we might truly live secure and free. In this Advent season, as we've been considering these realities, we've also heard and been thinking about a very similar invitation offered to us by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11. I want you to hear if you see the similarities now that we've considered Isaiah 55. In Matthew chapter 11, we've been reading it from the message translation. Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Your soul that jumbled mess of emotion on the edge of control, chaotic. Are you burned out on religion? Right? Sounds a lot like Isaiah 55. The thirsty, the poor, the weak, the hungry, downtrodden. Is that you? Well, Jesus offers a similar invitation here when he says, come to me. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Spiritually thirsty, come to me because I am living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again, Jesus says. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Come to me. Hungry, weak, and soul. So I am the true bread. I am, as we have seen Jesus say this season, this fall, the true vine. Come to me, abide in me, be with me. I am the feast of God that satisfies, that strengthens. This is Jesus' essential call to those who would be his disciples or his apprentices as we've looked at this Advent season. Those who would orient their lives around the essential realities of seeking to be with Jesus. To be with him in order that having been with him and staying with him, we would become increasingly like him. Taking on his life, his rhythms, his way of living, so that as he would send us out, we could increasingly do live like he lived. Friends, a fundamentally different way of understanding what it is to be Jesus' disciple is the very thing we've been talking around for the last few weeks. It's not primarily this process of information acquisition. Like we've tried that. That's part of it. But it's left us empty when it comes to the affective reality of being with him and his very presence with us. 
And we've reaped some of the consequences of soul because of it. So hear him again. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Be with me. Do you hear him? Learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Keeping company with Jesus. It's a vision of what it means to be his disciple, his apprentice, that I would pray our hearts become increasingly captivated by. Because I think if we're really honest and we consider our life in relation to being his disciple, we've been pretty good at keeping stats on Jesus and keeping doctrinal files about Jesus, but keeping company with Jesus. Being with him by his spirit. This is the essence of what it means to abide in him and he in us. It's how you and I truly begin to recover by his grace the life that we were created for. The life that he died in order to redeem. And so one of the ways that we began to practically start talking about what this looks like was to start talking about learning from him the unforced rhythms of grace that characterized his life. That you and I as his disciples might begin to intentionally orient our lives around this aim of being with him by taking into our life his rhythms. And the very first rhythm that we began to talk about and at least introduced last week was the rhythm of spiritual solitude. We saw it all throughout Jesus' life, carving out intentional time for being with him and him alone. Jesus would regularly at points and times when you and I would seek more noise and more distraction and more engagement and more energy, he would carve out time to be with the Father and the Father alone. And so we talked about what this rhythm might look like in our life, and we talked about starting it in silence, not trying to fill the time with more activity and more noise, not trying to carve out time to be with Jesus and Jesus alone and then do things for him while we're there, just to be. Because as we are with him in both silence and solitude, he, by his spirit, forms us into someone who increasingly has this inner quiet and disposition and whose heart is increasingly tuned to hear his voice and who are able to come face to face with the reality of the state of our own heart and our own soul more clearly. It's a rhythm that was a regular part of his life. And so for those who gave it a run, who were with us, and you heard it, and you began to think, what would this look like in my life? I would say if we had the time, how did it go? I'd ask you, how did it go? I mean, did you find it difficult in the moments that you carved out to not try to fill the time with more activity and noise? Did that feel even unnatural to a degree? Like, is it okay to just sit and be with Jesus? Is that okay? Did you wrestle with those things? I'd encourage you to continue to stick with it, and to continue to carve out this time. And, and we'll be coming back in the months ahead, back to this and talking more about it. But this morning, we're going to consider another unforced rhythm of God's grace that we see in Jesus' life. And, and then as the holidays move on and the new year comes in, we probably won't come back to this for a little while because we'll just let you sit with two, like just two. 
and let you kind of work these two rhythms out for a little while, and we'll talk about them a little bit before we introduce some others. And as we get ready to talk about this second rhythm, let me just remind you, these rhythms of grace are are not something that you and I begin to practice and work into our life for the sake of the rhythm itself. And that's how we tend to, to think about things like this sometimes. They're, they're not rhythms and practices and habits for the sake of the rhythm and the practice and the habit. They're there for our formation. They're there as instruments of God's grace for our transformation. As Paul would tell Timothy, there are ways in which God's spirit works to train our hearts in godliness. And Paul would remind Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with the irreverent and silly myths, right? Those competing stories of the world that speak of bread and work that can't satisfy. Don't, don't, don't mess around with those things. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, and it is, godliness or Christ-likeness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. These rhythms of grace are purposeful. They're ways in which God, by his spirit, as we learn these rhythms from Jesus, continues to train, conform, our hearts into increased Christ-likeness. And so this morning, I want us to consider another unforced rhythm of grace in Jesus' life, a rhythm that we as his apprentices habituate into our own life for the purpose, for the training, for the reality of God's Spirit increasingly conforming us into the image of his Son, that by the work of his Spirit, we might begin to recover the life we were created for. And so as we get ready to jump into this second rhythm, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to take a running start on it, right? We're going to have to like start back. If you, if you ever had to do running sprints or flying sprints as, a, as an athlete, you, you run for like five yards before you hit full sprint. We're going to have to go backwards and, and kind of get a running start on this particular rhythm because it's a rhythm that Jesus was actually born into. A rhythm that he embraced in his life here on earth. And a rhythm that by his life here on earth and his death in our place and his resurrection from the dead, he utterly transformed for his apprentices who would follow him. So we got to go backwards. And we're going to go backwards all the way to the Old Testament. All the way back close to the beginning of the story. We could go to the beginning of the story, but we don't have that kind of time. So we'll go back into the Old Testament and I will remind you that God in his mercy rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he brought them out of Egypt to the wilderness, to the place at the mountain where he would meet with them. And when he met with them, having brought them out of slavery, God made a covenant with them. He, he formed a relationship with them. He promised that he would be theirs and they would be his. And in creating this covenant, he then gave his people, what gracious gift, he gave his people the form and the structure for keeping this covenant, for remaining faithful in this relationship. It's what we understand to be the commandments that we read throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, 
We gave him, he gave his people a pattern and a way to deal with the realities of their covenant unfaithfulness. We begin to see those things as we make our way into the book of Leviticus. But together, these patterns that God gave his people were a structure by which they could not only worship him rightly, but the covenant that God made with them, the promises and the penalties for violating it, it would be something that they would be regularly reminded of. And so if you were to go back this week and you were to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, and in the second half of the book of Exodus, you'll see God give Moses and his people very specific instructions for building this thing called the tabernacle that's going to dominate the story for a few books. And the tabernacle in particular is where God would dwell amongst his people. He literally would inhabit that tabernacle and his presence would be in the midst of his people. And this was the only way that that could happen. But for God to be present with his people, his people had to see and had to deal with the reality of their sinfulness. And that's where you get all the instructions in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, maybe you were with us a few years ago, that was more than a few years ago, but we did a whole Advent season called Adventicus, where we went through Leviticus. And I love this stuff, and I can spend the whole morning on this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But Leviticus will detail the ways in which God gives his people this structure of these appointed sacrifices and they would be administered as God's gracious provisions for his people's failures to keep their end of the relationship, their end of the covenant. And so as you read the book of Leviticus in the first seven chapters, you're introduced to the five major sacrifices and offerings that God tells his people about. The sin offering or the sacrifice for sin, which dealt really with their cleansing. And there was the burnt offering, which began to speak of their consecration to God. The entire offering, the entire sacrifice for the burnt offering was consumed on the altar. There was the peace offering, which is fascinating because, again, we don't have time to get into all this. But as the offering and the sacrifice would be made portions of the sacrifice would be taken and reserved for the family that offered the sacrifice to eat a fellowship meal, a meal of peace, having the sacrifice already been offered and received. Fascinating. And then there was the guilt offering and the the grain offering. And these were the ways that God had given his people to deal with and respond to their inability ongoing to keep their end of the relationship that he had cut with them. And then if you keep reading in Leviticus, in Leviticus 23 through 25, you'll see that God also gave his people a series of of what we could call holy seasons or holy times. And, and these are the festivals and the feasts that God appointed for his people to observe throughout the year. It kind of set their calendar from the weekly Sabbath to the Passover to the, the Feast of First Fruits or the, the Feast of Booths, which we talked about in the I Am series. This is a way that God's people's calendar would be ordered around these festivals and feasts that God had given his people of which these sacrifices were all a part of. And so you could keep reading and you'll get to Leviticus 23, 37 and you'll hear the word of the Lord say that these are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, holy gathering for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings each on its proper day. Now, I just went really fast through something that literally is the stuff of entire libraries, entire PhDs, right? The best way I could picture it for you is I'm like that little lifeboat dinghy tied to a yacht. I'm just like 
tied up to all that scholarship, just trying to explain a little bit for you this morning. And what I want you to hear in this, and what I want you to see, and and kind of where we're going to go with this from here, is the fact that God gave his people a particular rhythm to live by and worship him by. And with each festival and with each feast and with each sacrifice that his people would obediently follow, the story of God's holiness, the story of God's grace, the reality of their sin and the relationship with God that he had made with them that they continue to fail in, they were being told of and reminded of in God's provision for their failures every single time. You see, when, a, when an Israelite would come to worship the Lord as the way he had appointed with one of these sacrifices, he didn't just bring the sacrifice that was required to the tabernacle or eventually to the temple, hand it over to the priest, go sit in a corner and watch what happened from there and get up and go home. No, they would bring the appropriate sacrifice according to God's word. And that family, the head of that family, that person who was offering that sacrifice, they would literally have to put their hands on that animal. According to the different sacrifices, they would confess their sins. As they would confess their sins, they were being reminded that a substitute had to shed their blood because of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant and relationship. And after that would happen, do you realize? They had to kill the animal. Not the priest. They killed the animal that was going to shed its blood in their place for their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. Only then, in most of these sacrifices and during these festivals, did the priests come in and do what God had appointed for them to do in relation to this. Each sacrifice, each festival, each feast would remind God's people over and over of the story that they were a part of. The story of God's holiness, the story of their sinfulness, and the story of his steadfast love and faithfulness. As one writer said, cultures have always been formed and kept by the stories they share. And this was the story that God wove into the life of his people week after week and year after year. And it mattered Because everywhere that they went, Israel was constantly confronted with alternative stories. Alternative stories of rival gods and rival kingdoms. Of rival bread that would satisfy and rival labor that they should pursue. Stories that regularly seduced their hearts, captured their hearts, and led them astray, leading them to violate the covenant they had made with God. And so again, week by week and year by year, They would come as God had appointed. And this rhythm of worship that God gave them would constantly remind them of the real story that they were a part of and would work to re-narrate and recalibrate the longings of their heart. I say all that to say as the running start, this was the rhythm that Jesus was born into. When he was born, this was the rhythm of the life of God's people and the worship of God's people. If you go back and you read the gospel stories, I wish we just had the time to stop and just do each little piece. You'll see, just looking at Luke, in Luke chapter 2, you see Jesus being brought to the temple on the eighth day of his life to be circumcised and dedicated to the Lord as the word of the Lord had said in the Old Testament. 
His family, their life, their rhythms were all woven into what God had called his people to do. The rhythm of worship that God gave Israel was the one that Jesus was born into. And so you keep reading and you see in Luke chapter 3, he was taken to the temple as a boy for one of the feasts like Passover with his family. And there he is at the age of 12 asking questions and talking with the religious leaders and teachers of the day. He, he was born into this system of worship, born into this rhythm that God had given his people. If you keep reading the Gospels, you'll see throughout Jesus' actual ministry, so much of what's recorded for us happens around this rhythm. So many times Jesus is at the temple or with the disciples going to the temple for one of the festivals or one of the feasts, and it was there that he would heal someone or there that he would speak, or there that he would proclaim that he is living water. There he is, the true light. It was there so many of the I am's we looked at this fall actually occurred. But here's what I want you to see. He was born into this rhythm. He was born into this pattern that God had given his people. But the history of Israel would tell you that there came a point in the Old Testament when God's people were conquered by the Babylonians. They were taken captive and, and they were spread out throughout one of the largest empires in the world. They were on the threat of extinction and complete assimilation. The temple was destroyed. And it was during that time of, of exile that God's people would begin to gather. They didn't have the temple to go to to offer the sacrifices. They couldn't go back to Jerusalem to do what God had commanded. Here they were in far-flung places of the empire, but they would begin to gather together and they would do it every single week. And when they gathered together every Sabbath of every single week, they began to read from God's word, read from what we would know as the first five books of the Bible and the writings, which were some of the prophets, and they would sing together the Psalms, which was the original hymnal of God's people. And they would pray and they would hear blessings Every single week, they would begin to do this. And this helped hold their identity together as God's people, but at the same time, continue to nurture and reinforce their confidence in God. And this thing would take place at what would become to be known as the synagogue. That's what the synagogue is. And they would gather there weekly to hear God's word, to pray, to read, to sing. The synagogue became kind of the center of Israeli social life. You know, the, we talked about what it meant to become an, an apprentice of a rabbi, a disciple of a rabbi, and the process that kids would go to. That school, that training process was attached to the synagogue. The synagogue in all these different regions became like a community center. People would come, they would have meals there, services for the, the people of God would be delivered out of the synagogue. They would get there every, every Sabbath to, to worship. That's what it became. And by Jesus' day, when we begin to read of his life, even as a child, there was a synagogue in nearly every village and every town, and the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians had been rebuilt. So now the original rhythm and pattern that God had given his people and the sacrifices that would happen in the temple was going on, and this gathering in the villages and the towns and the synagogue for teaching, for prayer, for singing, for reminding was going on as well. And this is what Jesus was born into. And so you find yourself in Luke chapter 4, Reading in verse 14, Jesus having been tempted by Satan after his baptism, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Verse 15, and Jesus taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And listen to this, as was his custom, 
he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. As was his custom, gathering in the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath to hear the word of the Lord read, to pray, to sing, to be with God's people as God had commanded in the Old Testament wasn't something Jesus added on to his life when he began his ministry. It was his custom. It was the rhythm of the way he lived. It was the rhythm of worship in the life of God's people, Jesus as well. And so what it means is that on Friday, when the first three stars were visible in the sky, a horn would be blown, and Jesus, like the rest of those in the villages in Galilee, would gather in their homes with their family or with loved ones, and they would share the Sabbath meal because Sabbath had started. And the very next morning, as was his custom every single week, God's people in those villages and in those towns would gather in the synagogue where they would recite the word of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would sing psalms together. If you've ever read the psalms, that's that's a variety of emotion right there. And they would sing them all together. They would hear portions of God's word read. And then someone would teach. And there would be prayers. And then there would be a blessing. And then there would be a benediction, a sending. This was all happening along with the rhythm of the festivals and the feasts in Jerusalem at the temple. And this was Jesus' custom. This was the rhythm that his disciples would have observed from him. It would have been the rhythm that they followed him in as he grew in wisdom and stature and so did they. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as you think about this being Jesus' custom, have you ever considered Jesus, the man, right? He's a real man would gather for 33 years every week and sing. You ever think about Jesus singing? Like he'd gather with God's people and they would sing the psalms together. You ever think about Jesus, the man, every single week he, he'd gather, as, since he was a boy to the time of his departure, he would sit and he would listen to someone else very often read God's word. And then he'd listen to someone else Teach it. What's that like? Talk about humility. You think it's something to listen to me. Imagine Jesus sitting there, but that's what he did. This was his custom. See, friends, like Israel of old and like Israel of Jesus' day, you and I are confronted every day with rival stories that are after our hearts, and we don't even realize it. And without realizing it, our hearts and our desires and our cravings and our longings get miscalibrated. All these other stories trying to tell us what went wrong, what's wrong with us, how it gets fixed, and what a good life really is. We steep in all these stories every day, all week long. And I don't know if you've ever realized it or not, but it's the unforced rhythm of God's grace that we call corporate worship that God uses to recalibrate our hearts, to re-narrate our heart in the true story that we're a part of, to expose in the process the, the emptiness of all the false stories and kingdoms that we hear about all week. But here's the thing. Jesus did not just engage in this rhythm that God had given his people every year and every week to be reminded 
of who God is and the nature of their sinfulness and the promise of their relationship and the need for the covering for their sin and the restoration that he has promised in his steadfast love, Jesus literally transformed that entire story for all of his disciples who would follow. You see, in his life, Jesus kept the covenant that God had made with his people perfectly and faithfully, not by just perfectly obeying God's law, which he did, but enjoying God the Father deeply. And then in his love, he offered himself as our sacrifice, as our substitute. You see, it was in his death on the cross that Jesus offered himself to God in our place. Like the sacrifices of old, he bore our sin and its deserved judgment on his body. And in doing so, he satisfied God's just demands against us. And in that, he freed us from the realities of the consequences eternally of our sin and reconciled us to God. You see, in Jesus, all that the Old Testament sacrifices and rhythms symbolized, Jesus actually and literally accomplished in his saving work. He did it. All those sacrifices and that entire rhythm that God had given his people that would narrate to their hearts every single time who he is and who they are and the promise of his love, all of those things were just anticipating and pointing toward what was actual in Jesus' life and death. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews will go to such great pains to help us to see that all of those things were actually copies of the true sacrifice. Like, it's a whole other sermon in itself. But in God's wisdom and knowledge and eternal plan, those sacrifices, those rhythms, that temple, that tabernacle, those priests, those were all patterned after the true and full and final sacrifice. Jesus in his sacrifice and in his ministry to us wasn't patterned after that Old Testament. That Old Testament was patterned after what God knew would be true in his son. And so whoever wrote Hebrews, and whether you think it was Paul or not, he would remind us that Jesus did in himself what those sacrifices could never do. He made forgiveness and reconciliation with God possible once for all, never to be repeated. And ever since Jesus' resurrection, as his disciples, his apprentices, would engage in the unforced rhythm of grace that they observed in Jesus' life as they would gather together with God's people every single week. They were reminded and their hearts were recalibrated towards the true story that God has brought us in. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the entire morning when you and I gather together like this as God's people, by his grace, his spirit is at work in everything that we do, in everything that we say, and in how we do it to reform and recalibrate our hearts. To recalibrate our hearts according to his story of grace in the gospel. We're reminded in everything that we do and how we do it of who we are, who Jesus is, and what his kingdom's like. And it matters because just like Israel, we're a very forgetful people. And there's a lot of reasons why you and I do what we do when we gather together, and a lot of reasons why you and I do gather together. But of all the reasons why we do it, what I want you to hear this morning is just one. A primary reason why we do this every week is for God by his spirit according to his grace to recalibrate our soul. 
You simply cannot overestimate the importance of having this story worked into the fullness of your being the way it does when we're together. That's what this gathering does and what it's designed to do. It was Mark Twain who was, who was famous for saying, I, I could tell you with all the great powers of my prose, which Twain was tremendous at, I could tell you what it was like to try to carry a cat by the tail. But it's an altogether different thing for me to give you a cat and you hold it by its tail. Twain said, there are some things you can only learn by doing them. They get into you in an entirely different way. The gospel gets into our hearts and pressed into our souls in such a way to recalibrate the nature of our understanding of who we are. It gets into us in a way together like this that just information and reading can't do, isn't designed to do. All that we do together is designed to communicate, to capture our hearts and our imaginations with God's story. A story that stands against every rival story we hear throughout the week. And I want to remind you as we talk about it, this gathering it is not just primarily a means for you to express your personal devotion. That's part of it. We do that. But this gathering, according to God's rhythm, as an unforced rhythm of his grace, is ultimately a formative thing through which he is the primary actor by his spirit forming, recalibrating, re-narrating what's true to our hearts. And it happens the minute you walk in, sit down, and someone up here begins to speak. You and I are called into God's presence. That's what the call to worship is. And from the very beginning, you and I are reminded that what we're doing isn't our idea. We're not that bright. But even more than that, the God of the universe, the almighty sovereign one, has summoned us to be in his presence. That's what a call to worship is reminding us of. One writer said that since we on our own don't have the inclination or the ability to answer the call, our response and gathering is already a sign of God's redemption and regeneration at work. Because you and I and our sinfulness left to ourselves can't rightly respond to God's call to be in his presence. Just being here this morning, hearing his call and gathering with his people is already a reminder to you that he's been at work. That it's him that's working on you. And I say this in all sincerity, honesty, no intended shame or guilt, but I can stand up there behind those pipes and take a picture every, every week as we begin our service together in a call to worship and there might be 20 people sitting there. Because this is just the beginning stuff, right? If as long as I can park and talk and get in and hear the sermon, then, then I get the big stuff. But the entire time together is purposefully ordered to narrate the true story of God's grace into our hearts. And every piece of what we do, no matter how differently we do it in different times and ways, is all by God's spirit ways of telling us what's true. And so even in the call to worship, we're reminded that just being here being able to come into his presence, he's already been at work. We're not the ones who did it. He's already been at work and he wants us to be with him. And so he calls us and we respond with praise, most often in, in song. Sometimes it's been in, in spoken word, but it's very similar to that, to that praise offering that Israel would offer where they would offer an offering of praise and their bodies were involved and they'd wave and singing the way we do. 
in response to God's calling and initiative to our life. It is a full-bodied human response to God. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but it's God who made you physical. And even in the physicality of gathering, in the physicality of responding and singing as a people, God is dignifying the very creation that he made. He's dignifying your body. He's calling for it in the fullness of response to who he is. One theologian said singing, when we're together, it's, it's an action that activates the whole person, or at least more of the whole person than is affected by just sitting and passively listening, or even reading and reciting. Singing requires us to call on parts of the body that might otherwise remain dormant. Stomach muscles and vocal cords, lungs and tongues, all things that God made. And since singing seems to tap into our soul and our joints and our muscles, singing often pulls us into the movement of bowing, kneeling, raising our hands. We offer ourselves to the one who's called us by his grace in praise. But as he calls us into his presence, we're reminded of who he is. We were this morning in Isaiah 66. We're reminded as well of our own sinfulness on this side of his return. Like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips and have a hard time remaining faithful to God's covenant. And so together, every single week, we engage in an act of confession together. It takes on different forms. In this Advent season, you've been hearing this in the prayers of the different pastors that have been coming, but normally we actually have a corporate confession together where we're led in coming face to face with the uncleanness of our own hearts and lips coming face to face with our own disordered desires. And just this act of confessing together, it is telling a story and doing something that stands against every story that you and I come face to face with all week. All week, the world tells us in 10,000 ways that we have everything that we need in ourselves. You're good, you're strong, you're capable, you don't need anybody, you can do this. And when we come together and are called by God's grace and are reminded of his holiness and we sense the reality of our own uncleanness and sinfulness, it's he that promised to cleanse us as we confess our sins. We can't help but want to confess our sins and be reminded we're not what the world says. I mean, where else are you going to hear that story? Every story of the world all week is a you story. And you steep in it every day. Just our act of confession together week in and week out is counterformative to our heart. But as we've confessed our sins, we crave a reminder of his assurance. Crave a reminder of the assurance of his pardon. And so every week we're reminded of God's steadfast love to us in Christ. Which again stands against every story that we live in every week. Every story all day long shames us for not being enough. We feel guilty for not being enough. But it's only the good news of God's grace that declares to us that Jesus was enough in our place. And God wants us in his presence by his son, and we don't have to be anything else for him. Where else do you hear that? No, God has woven it into the life of his people. And it happens in a number of ways, but as we do that, we 
We were invited to then hear God's word and to learn from God through his word. And we recite his word. We pray his word. We're taught from his word. And once again, together, we are seeing Jesus together and being shaped into his image in order to live as he lived. And as God, by his spirit, works through his word into our hearts to continue to recalibrate our souls and our loves, he then invites us. He invites us, kind of like Isaiah 55 to have a meal with him. Having confessed our sins and been cleansed and been instructed by his word, he invites us to share this meal. This meal that is the assurance that our confession has been heard, that his steadfast love is faithful, that our sins are forgiven. For those who have believed in Jesus, we're invited to come and physically take bread and touch bread and smell bread and the cup, to dip it in the cup to be reminded of God's steadfast love to us through his son. It's so physical. We're displaying as we do it that former enemies have been reconciled. Friends now, because of Jesus, eating together. And together is important. We do this together. It's a communal thing. It's why we do it when we're gathered. And when we couldn't gather together, we didn't do it. It's a communal meal. We're not alone. We're reminded every week as we see each other at different times and response, stand and come forward, that we're part of a family by God's grace. Every day we live in a hyper-individualistic world. You're your own brand and everything you do, you've got to do you the you way. That's it. And we're reminded as we come together and receive this meal together that God, by his grace, has not left us alone. He's made us a part of a family And at the same time, every single week that we respond to God's grace and we share this meal with one another, we're reminded every time we do it, not just of his steadfast love, but we're reminded that we're still waiting. It's still an Advent reminder. We're still waiting for that final kingdom feast that we enjoy for all of eternity in his presence. We're proclaiming our confidence in him, the scriptures say, until he comes. And every time we do it, we're reminding ourselves and one another, he hasn't come yet. And so, as we eat the meal and we respond with praise, we don't just turn everything off and get up and walk out. We're purposefully sent out. We're sent out with a blessing and we're sent out with a charge. We've been called into his presence. We've confessed our sins. We've been reminded of his insurance. We've been instructed by his word. We've eaten the meal together, but we can't stay here forever. He sends us out now as his people to go in the presence of his son who will never leave us or forsake us. He sends us out not as individuals, but as a family, as sons, not as orphans, to be with his son who is always with us. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So here you go. We'll we'll, we'll end it this way. I I don't know if you've ever realized it, but just by showing up, you're giving yourself over to the gospel story, submitting yourself to the work of God's spirit to rework the loves of your heart. As one writer said, in a world that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and lies to us subtly and covertly and overtly at every turn that ourself and not God is in control, Being in the gathering of believers has a powerful effect on reinforcing our common story and common faith. God exists. 
He made our world. He rules over its every detail. And he sent his own son to rescue us from our sins and the punishment we justly deserve by faith in him. This gathering isn't simply a a single spiritual discipline or a, a single unforced rhythm of grace. It's a whole host of them, one writer said. It's a way of taking the experiences of prayer and worship and scripture, which we compartmentalize and individualize all the time, and we bring them all together as a people. And so he said, as we sing and we pray, we're enjoying Jesus together. As we hear his word read and preached, we're uniting our hearts together in the one true God who himself and the person of his son became one of us, lived among us, suffered with us, died for us, and rose triumphantly from the grave and now sits in power with all authority in heaven and on earth at his father's right hand, bringing to pass in his perfect patience and perfect timing all of his purposes in the world for our everlasting joy. And every week, we're reminded of that story and reality together. So I don't know what you expected out of Sunday morning, but this, the re-narrating and recalibrating of our hearts and of our loves is part of God's intention for your transformation. Now in the space between in which we live, between his first coming and his promised return, it's the unforced rhythm of grace that God uses in corporate worship to help us learn to live freely and lightly. It's why the writers of Hebrews would say, don't don't forsake it. We hear that text, don't forsake gathering together every single week, and we make it this thing we have to go do. No, there's a reason why. There's a reason why we don't forsake it. It's not because you'll get demerits given to you by God. It's because God has intended for it to be a rhythm of life and a formation for your soul. That's why it matters. So here, as we begin to respond, hear God's word again. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And just a moment when the musicians begin to sing, we're going to sing this invitation in a way. We're going to sing, oh, come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come and know you're not alone. Oh, come barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come bitter and broken. Come with your fears unspoken. Come guilty and hiding. There's no need to run. You're going to get to see and hear and be reminded of what your God has done. So come, though you have nothing. Come, because Jesus is the offering. Come, be reminded, and see what your God has done. Incline your ear and come, that your soul may live. And we'll sing, Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you, for your joy, that you may have life. We pray for us, and then we will respond together. We'll respond by giving you a moment to reflect on God's word and then we'll continue to respond as God then invites us who have believed upon his son by faith to come and to share this meal together, to be reminded and to proclaim at the same time our confidence in him. We'll sing, we'll celebrate, and then we'll be sent out from here. We won't just end it, we're gonna be sent as his people. So let me pray 
and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you that you have given us in our time, in this day, this rhythm of grace that works to constantly press into our hearts, press into our bones, the reality of your grace and the story of your goodness. Lord, help us to not forsake it. It's not a means by which we earn anything. It's not a means by which we keep score on anyone else or our own life, but give us a sense and a taste of its purpose and its value in reforming the loves of our heart. Let us not forsake it because without it we grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and false stories. You use this to thaw our hearts, to reform it. God, we thank you for your kindness to us and your work towards us by your Son and your Spirit. For we offer ourselves to you through him by your grace. For we ask that you would do in us what only you can do. In Jesus' good name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.